you have to make sure that the agent, the person who's going to be making decisions, has access to the power of attorney. Otherwise, it really doesn't help all that much. It's just a, you know, another document that's sitting there. Let us help you reach your peak in retirement. It's time for your Retirement Elevated. Well, hello, this is Scott Dugan, and welcome to today's podcast. I'm very excited to be joined uh, by Chris Gaughan and Casey Keneally of Gaughan and Keneally Law Firm. Uh, they are estate planning attorneys of choice. I've known these gentlemen for quite a long time. Next, we have a lot of joint clients that we work together and take care of. And so this is going to be a series that we're going to run uh, talking about different types of estate planning issues, uh, estate planning opportunities and mistakes. And so I'm going to be quiet for a lot of today and let these two uh, smart gentlemen talk about what they know best, which is estate planning. So Chris Casey, uh, welcome to today's podcast. Hey, thanks, uh, Scott. Appreciate you having us on. Hopefully this will be helpful for um, folks that we haven't worked with and maybe even a nice reminder for people that we have worked with. Because I know that we, you know, like you said, we share a lot of clients. So uh, hopefully we'll have lots of good info for them today. We've got kind of uh, a couple of different topics we want to talk about. And if you'd like us to, we can just kind of roll right into it. Does that work for you? Absolutely. You guys take the floor. Perfect. Perfect. Well, as estate planners, one of the first things that kind of pops up for us is what happens if I become incapacitated? You know, a lot of people think estate planning is just, hey, what happens when I die? Do I need a will? Do I need a trust? How do my family get my assets? Um, estate planning really starts before that. And it has a lot to do with before any of those things happen, like you get sick, you get disabled, um, you know, somebody needs to make decisions for you. And the thing that comes up most often, the thing people hear about most often is powers of attorney. Most people have heard that term. They've either got one or they know someone that has one. Um, and sometimes there's a few misconceptions about it. So we want to start today by talking about powers of attorney during that time of disability and the kind of the four places we're going to go with this. Uh, number one, what exactly is a power of attorney? What are the differences, different types? Um, what happens if you don't have a power of attorney and you need one? What to do with a power of attorney when you have them completed? So you've got it done. Where does it go? And then some common misconceptions that come up as well for powers of attorney. So Chris, do you want to talk about those to start? Yeah. So let's jump in. Uh, there are two common types of powers of attorney you'll see created by attorneys like us. Uh, one is called a financial power of attorney. Sometimes you'll hear it called a property power of attorney or a general power of attorney. And it's just a legal document wherein you authorize someone else to deal with financial related issues if you're sick or hurt or sometimes even unavailable. And so I'll give you an example. At my house, for whatever reason, my wife is not on our water bill. And if she were to call the water company and try to pay the bill or get a copy of a statement, uh, they would talk to her. She's not on the account. But if she were to send them over a copy of my financial power of attorney, they would let her deal with that account in my name. And so that's what these things are geared towards is just dealing with financial transactions that happen to be in someone's name. Now, the other common power of attorney you'll run into in our line of work is what's called a medical power of attorney or a durable healthcare power of attorney. And that's a document where you authorize someone to make medical decisions for you if you get sick or get hurt or if you can't communicate. And a little bit of an offshoot of that, um, sometimes within the power of attorney or sometimes within a separate document, You'll see what's called an advanced directive. Uh, sometimes you hear it called a living will. Those terms are generally used interchangeably, but that's uh, some provisions where you say, hey, if I reach this point in life, I don't want any additional treatment. If I'm terminal and vegetative and multiple doctors have determined that I'm not gonna recover one way or another, at that stage, I'd like to get comfort care 
but I don't want you to artificially prolong the dying process. And so we're going to kind of shift here, and then Casey's going to jump in and talk about what happens if you don't have these things. Yeah, so we know what they are now, but if you don't have one and you need one, what happens? So imagine the scenario, you know, you have some kind of uh, accident or health concern where you cannot manage your finances anymore. You can't sign checks, you can't pay bills, you can't make medical decisions, and you don't have these documents in place. What tends to happen? And it's the dreaded P word, the the P word that everybody hears about in estate planning and not, not often knows what it means. It's probate. And this isn't the probate most people think of. This is actually what we call living probate. And, and it's living probate because it's done with the same judge, the same probate judge that handles probate after you pass away. Uh, it's handled in the same courtroom, but it happens when you're still alive. Typically, when we're doing living probate, we're talking about uh, two things together, guardianship and conservatorship. One of the big misconceptions that comes up when we talk about living probate or not having these documents in place is that spouses and adult children do not have automatic rights. Many people believe, gosh, if I get sick, my spouse will make this decision. If I can't do it myself, my son will go to the bank and pay my bills for me. And unless there's something written down showing that that's what you want to have happen, they don't have any legal rights to do that. And so if you don't have those things written down and nobody has the authority to sign those checks, to pay those bills, to take care of you at the hospital, you end up going through this living probate process. And again, guardianship and conservatorship are the other terms you'll hear for this. A lot of times those are done at the same time. They'll do both guardianship and conservatorship at the same time. It's the same person. Sometimes they split that duty. And the big difference there, guardian is someone that takes care of health, safety, and welfare. So it's decisions about the person. So a lot of times that's medical decisions, where they live, uh, those types of decisions. Conservatorship is taking care of someone's money or their finances. And so you might have somebody that's in charge of uh, paying the bills and somebody that's in charge of making medical decisions. Again, a lot of times that's that's one in the same person. But typically we're going through that living probate process. You walk into our office and need to do one of those. It's a few thousand dollars. And typically that process is 60 days or more to complete guardianships and conservatorships. So it's not very fast and it is uh, fairly expensive if you need to go through it. So then, Casey, I want to jump in and talk a little bit here um, about what to do if you actually have a power of attorney. It's it's really interesting, but a lot of times folks come see us. You know, they they take the time to put together these legal documents, and then they get done and go. So so what do I actually do with this stuff? And so we just like to have you know kind of an explanation of the practical things you need to do with your power of attorney. So number one, we tell everybody everybody should give hard copies. That just means paper copies to the agent. So when you have a power of attorney. You name an agent, that's the person authorized to make financial decisions or make medical decisions. And so that agent, that person who's going to be making decisions for you, well, they need a copy of the document, right? It's not very helpful. It's kind of like keys to a car. You can't drive a car if you don't have the keys. Now, I always tell clients as well, it's a really good habit to get into to keep copies of your healthcare powers of attorney in your glove box or keep them somewhere else in your car where they're accessible. You know, emergencies never tend to happen at convenient times and never happen during bank hours. We don't want these things locked away in a safe deposit box. In fact, one of the great ironies is that the power of attorney is what would let you get into the safe deposit box, right? It's the keys to open the safe deposit box. But if the power of attorney is in there, you're kind of a little bit out of luck. So anyway, we always want folks to keep uh, a copy of their medical powers of attorney in the glove box of their car or otherwise available just in a, in a convenient way. What I personally do, and I think what Casey does as well, is I store copies of my stuff in cloud storage. Um, that way I have access to it on my phone, at my desktop here at the office, uh, at, uh, at home, wherever I might be. And there's a million different services out there. You can do, use Dropbox or OneDrive or Google Drive. Um, if created in a smart way, the powers of attorney are not going to have social security numbers in them. So it's perfectly fine to store them electronically, to email them to yourself. 
to email them to your uh, agents as well. And then one other thing that kind of comes up with the powers of attorney and what to do with them, understand that copies work as well as the originals. You know, the person who's going to make, be making decisions, the agent, they don't have to have a blue ink copy. They don't have to have an original signed copy. It's perfectly fine for them to have a photocopy or a digital copy, and that's going to work just fine. Uh, but understand, though, the, the real takeaway on this is you have to make sure that the agent, the person who's going to be making decisions, has access to the power of attorney. Otherwise, it really doesn't help all that much. It's just, a you know, another document that's sitting there. And yeah. Chris and Casey, one thing to that. Uh, so all of the clients that you know we work with, they're all provided a personal dashboard and so they can log in. And inside of that dashboard is a encrypted vault. And we have a folder that is for legal documents. I know if we're working with a joint client, uh, your firm provides all those documents. We upload all those documents into the vault and, and organize those. And so worst case scenario, we always have access to a copy of that here on our, our side. We try to make it as easy as possible to access those documents um, because I think you make a good point. You know, accidents, emergencies are, are never, never, you know, good time, have a good time around them. Absolutely. And Scott, I'm, I'm glad you do that for your clients. And that's why we try to do cloud storage or something like you've got, because I mean, you know, our clients like to travel. They like to go out of town. They don't have their <laughs> their file cabinet uh, in Florida with them or wherever they might go. And so having that available, having it on their phone makes it really, really, really easy for them. Uh, also makes it easy for their kids if their kids are out of town to be able to get a hold of those. So very important to have them have, have access to those anywhere that you are, anywhere that you are. Well, we've actually had that come up at our house. We were on vacation in Florida a few years back. And we had been in town for all of maybe 45 minutes. We went to a grocery store to get some food for the condo we rented. And my wife managed to drop a bottle of wine on her foot and break a bone in her foot. And so one of our first trips in Florida was to the doctor. But thankfully, we had uh, copies of her powers of attorney and advanced directives, which they asked for, had them on the phone. And it was very, very easy to access. And so having digital access is unbelievably helpful. Absolutely. Another piece that comes up with powers of attorney that we talk about a lot are misconceptions. These are things where folks come in to see us and maybe they've done this planning before, maybe they haven't, but they, they have these preconceived notions about how powers of attorney work and what kinds of power of attorney they should have. And one of the things that we really try to combat is getting you educated to make sure you understand the differences because there's a bunch of misconceptions out there surrounding powers of attorney. The first one and the biggest one that we deal with is this concept of is it an immediate power of attorney or is it a springing power of attorney? Most people don't realize there's kind of two different types that are out there. Immediate powers of attorney mean that it is valid as soon as you sign the document. So for instance, if I was going to make Chris my power of attorney and it was an immediate power of attorney for financial matters, as soon as I signed the document, Chris could take that power of attorney, go to my bank and sign a check. And that's whether or not I am in the hospital, whether or not I'm incapacitated, I could be walking around doing just fine and he can take that power of attorney and do whatever he wants. The second kind is a springing power of attorney. This is how most people think that powers of attorney work in that it springs into action after something happens. So I go to the hospital, the doctor says he can't make financial decisions anymore. So then it springs into action and whoever my agent is can then go to the bank and sign checks. Now the misconception isn't necessarily just the difference between the two of them, but it's which one do you need? Uh, I would say, and Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, I think 99% of my clients probably have immediate powers of attorney rather than springing powers of attorney. And when you tell people that right off the bat, they think, gosh, that doesn't make 
a lot of sense. Wouldn't I, wouldn't I want to only have that come up when I'm incapacitated? And the biggest hurdle to that is they say, but if I sign it right now, they could go to the bank and, and take money from me anytime. And our response to that is always really easy. If you think they're going to steal from you when you're walking around and fine, just think what they're going to do once, <laughs> once you become incapacitated. Maybe that's not the person you should have on your power of attorney, right? That doesn't make a lot of sense. But, but it's, a, it's a bigger question because the reason we have these documents, the reason we put someone in charge of our finances, in charge of our medical decisions when we can't do it ourselves, is we want them to be able to take immediate action. We don't want to have to go get some third party like a court or a doctor or anyone else to say, hey, I want my family to be able to help me. That's why we're signing the document. So like I said, we use immediate powers of attorney in almost every case, where as soon as you sign that document, whoever's on that list can go do things. And this comes up all the time when we're dealing with folks that, for instance, have some dementia or some Alzheimer's issues. And they do some of this sundowning where they say, gosh, they're really good in the morning, but in the afternoon and the evening, they really don't know what's going on. Well, a springing power of attorney wouldn't necessarily work there because will the doctor sign the note that says they're incapable in the morning if they're having a really good morning? Yeah, probably not. But they definitely need some help in the afternoon. With an immediate power of attorney, the family doesn't have to worry about that. They can help that person, that family member anytime. So immediate versus springing, it's a big issue. It's a big topic. And we are of the opinion that immediate powers of attorney make sense in almost every case. Again, there's there's a reason for objection here and there, but on almost every case, immediate versus spring is a really a really good idea. Um, second misconception that we deal with all the time is the validity of a power of attorney when someone passes away. The easiest answer, the easiest thing to say here is a power of attorney is not valid after someone dies. We have lots of clients come in and say, well, you know, does dad have a will? Do they have a trust? Do they, are they going to transfer this bank account to you? And they say, oh, don't worry about it. I have a power of attorney. If they die, I'll just go to the bank and withdraw the funds. And that is, quite frankly, fraud. That's all that is. You're not, it's, it's invalid at death. You're not allowed to use a power of attorney after somebody passes away. It's only valid during their lifetime. They are typically durable powers of attorney. So it's valid when they're healthy, and it's also valid when they are disabled, but it does not have any validity at death. So don't try and use a power of attorney after someone passes away. And Chris, we've talked about real estate before. Do you want to talk about real estate with powers of attorney as well and the misconception there? Yeah. And so we, we obviously do a lot of work with uh, real estate agents um, in large part because houses get stuck in probate all the time. And one of the things I'll tell you that we've, we've learned over the years, um, powers of attorney don't really play very nicely with real estate. I always tell clients that you're going to have uh, a real easy time using the power of attorney to deal with bank accounts, life insurance policies, IRAs, all those kinds of things. But in all likelihood, if you use it to try to sell a home, it's probably not going to pan out. In fact, we actually put a giant disclaimer on our power of attorney. It says, you know, hey, in all likelihood, this probably is not going to be effective in order to sell real estate once you're incapacitated. So there are some uh, other estate planning devices we'll talk about in other sessions to get around that. The powers of attorney tend to not really play very well with real estate. Yeah, absolutely. The other misconception we get a lot of is, is this kind of, I, I signed one at the doctor's office or I already filled one of those out. Uh, my doctor had me sign it before I, I had my appointment. A lot of times when we hear that, what it means is, okay, you say you signed one. Do you have a copy? Does your agent have a copy? Does your do your kids have a copy? Your spouse have a copy? Where is it? If I needed to see it, where would I have to go? And if it's only at the doctor's office, that's not very helpful to us, number one. Number two, usually when you sign those at a doctor's office, it's a very, very specific kind of power of attorney that only applies to that doctor's office. So the example of that, maybe you go see um, a heart doctor at KU Med and then you go to St. Luke's to be admitted to the hospital. 
Well, the power of attorney or the forms that you signed at the doctor's office at KU may not transfer over to St. Luke's Hospital. It may be that they need one because it's, it's a site-specific document. So you need to be very careful if you go and sign one at one doctor's office, it's not going to necessarily transfer to another. And then the final misconception we, we get hit with quite a bit is expiration. Does this power of attorney expire? I signed it two years ago. Is it still valid? I signed it 10 years ago. Is it still valid? For the most part, yes. Powers of attorney typically do not expire. It would have to have some kind of expiration typically right within the document that says this document is only good for six months, 12 months, a year. And I would say that that is very uncommon. In fact, I've seen it only a handful of times. Uh, most of the time, they're not going to have any expiration at all. You're going to be able to use that as soon as you sign it up until uh, the time of your death. So as we uh, kind of wind down our session here, um, our goal in our office is always to provide useful and actionable information for people. And so we thought we'd kind of wind this down and just talk about who should have a power of attorney and, and how you go about getting one. Uh, who should get a power of attorney? Who needs one? This is pretty, pretty easy. I mean, basically anybody over the age of 18. You know, once uh, you turn 18, your parents are no longer authorized to make any kind of decision for you. And so from that moment on, if there is an emergency, quite literally, no one is legally authorized to make medical decisions for you or deal with anything related to your finances without a power of attorney. So pretty much everybody uh, from the moment they become an adult needs to do at least have, have some basic powers of attorney in place. Now, where to get one's a little bit more complicated. Um, you know, this is a, a, a brave new world we're in where everything's online and you can find things out there. And I've seen some powers of attorney online that were uh, not bad at all. And I've seen some other ones that were absolutely terrible. And so, you know, we normally encourage folks, hey, if you're going to look at doing this stuff, um, I just contact an estate planning attorney, um, someone that does this stuff all day long. I've actually um, seen powers of attorney drafted by lawyers that do a lot of different things that are general practitioners that aren't very good either. So we always encourage folks to uh, to visit with someone that does this stuff all day if they ever are in the need to do these, uh, to do powers of attorney. So with that, Scott, I think we'll kind of wind down our part of your session and uh, see what we can do to, uh, to you know, help any other questions you might have on this topic. All right. Thanks, Chris and Casey. No, I think you did a fantastic job of going over the, really the the basics of, you know, power of, powers of attorney. I know we get those questions a lot, and obviously we always defer uh, mostly to the, the two of you, but I think there's a lot of misconceptions. You definitely helped help clear those up. So, you know, as the listeners of our podcast, uh, if you are obviously a client of Chris and Casey or of our firm, uh, you've got these things handled. But if you're not, I would encourage you to reach out. Uh, I'll give you a, a Gone and Keneally's direct line. Uh, their phone number is 913-262-2000. Again, 913-262-2000. And the website is midwestestateplan.com. Um, and the reason I'm reading that out loud, because the podcast, there's no video. Uh, so I wanted to be able to uh, give you that that option to contact them. So as always, we appreciate you uh, taking your time to learn more about uh, good financial planning and especially the estate planning topic of uh, powers of attorney. So we'll look forward to seeing you next time on our next podcast. Investment advisory services offered through Elevated Capital Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.